about 30 days before my dad passed away, um, I was taking him. He was living with me. I was kind of taking care of him. He um, was diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver, and so every week we had to go to the doctor and get his stomach drained. So this was one of those ro routine visits, and um, as soon as the doctor saw him, the doctor decided that he didn't look well enough to go back home and that he needed to be hospitalized. And so they took him from there right to the hospital. And it wasn't that it was an emergency situation. It was just a matter of needing more care. Um, my dad had spent about 30 days in that hospital. I visited every day um, for the most part. I was, his, I'm, I was his only child, and so that was something that um, was important for me to make sure that I did. During that time, Jeff, my husband now, Jeff and I were, I would say, like, trying to build maybe something a little different than friendship. We were just on the verge of that. Um, honestly, he, he was helping a lot with my dad, just being there with my dad. And if you know my husband... This is part of the bond that they had. My dad was born and raised in Michigan, and my husband's a huge Michigan fan. My dad's a huge sports fan, so they definitely bonded and connected over that. Um, so this one particular day, I, Jeff and I had decided to meet at the hospital, and we um, walked in the hospital room, and immediately I just knew something was really, really wrong. My dad looked very different than he did even the day before. So the nurse was just walking out. I stopped the nurse and asked her what, what was wrong with my dad. Like, why does he look that way? The best I could describe is, like, he looked comatose almost, but he was awake. So his eyes were open. He wasn't blinking. Um, and she basically, she looked at me like I had three heads and said, well, he's in his last stages. He has a few hours or a few days to live. I take from that moment later on that everybody around me knew my dad was dying except for me, and it goes back to what I've preached on grief. Right? I was just in that first stage of denial, just utter denial. So my next question was, can he hear me? And she said with a smirk, no. And she walked out, and I felt devastated, devastated. I immediately broke. Um, and it's more than what you think. Of course, of course, I was upset about my dad um, on this doorstep of death. But it was deeper. I, I had missed, out of fear, the opportunity to share the love of Christ with my dad. I knew I needed to. I knew his, my whole life, as, as soon as I got saved, I knew that. But especially when he got sick, I knew that that was what I needed to do. But I was so afraid of his response or his reaction or his rejection or what he would think or feel. You see, my dad, um, when he was in high school, the stories I've heard was that he actually was very passionate and loved God. Um, he, the end of his senior year, he got a full scholarship, full academic scholarship to West Point. Upon graduating from high school, he was drafted into Vietnam War, and so all of those plans went to the wayside. My dad came back a very changed, angry, hurt individual, and he denounced God from, from that point on. He just couldn't believe or fathom 
that there was a God out there, much less a loving God, in the things that he saw and experienced. And you guys, for those that know me, you know my whole life, my dad was an addict. He was an alcoholic, and he was addicted to drugs. And so hearing this, seeing this in front of me, um, devastation is the best word I can give you because I lost my opportunity to actually spend the rest of my life knowing that not only that my dad was saved, but that where he was in eternity. I've entitled my talk today, A God Who Hears. My teaching is about Hagar and Ishmael, the wilderness and God. But first, I want to give some backstory. I'm sure most of you know the backstory, but it's just good to refresh before we get to the actual story of Hagar. Starts around Genesis 16. Um, so Sarah's in her mid-70s, her husband Abraham in his mid-80s, and Sarah at this point is unable to conceive a child, which we know in that time was very, very important. Abraham was a wealthy man, and so they longed to have not only offspring, but to be able to give their inheritance or pass down their inheritance. Abraham was actually worried. He said to God, I'm going to have to give it to one of my slaves. And so they're promised from God this, this child, this offspring. But being Sarah and being a woman, I can say that because Pastor Chris couldn't say that, but I can say it because I'm a woman. She, um, she wanted control, right? She took matters into her own hands. And so this is definitely me paraphrasing. There's a lot of points here I'm not able to really dig into because of time. But after years of this promise not coming to fruition, she goes to her husband and she says, I, I have a really good idea. I think this is what God meant. You sleep with my Egyptian maidservant, she'll get pregnant, and then we'll have our offspring in our family. And so Abraham decides that that's a, just a grand old idea. And so he lays down with Hagar and what Sarah says happens. They, she gets pregnant and they... Um, have a son, and they call him Ishmael, which means a God who hears. So with that being said, um, it kind of reminds me of, I think that this is kind of like the first family, one of the first families that, or stories that's recorded that we can look at this and go, this is what a blended family looks like. And me being from a, or in a blended family, um, from and in a blended family, I can relate. And it, it, it's no easier now than it was back then, to be honest. And, and so they definitely have their struggles. Sarah, years later, actually does get pregnant, right? So she's about 90. Um, and um, she gives birth to Isaac. And it says in Scripture about after the time that Isaac weans from her, which would be probably in that cultural culture about three years old. So at this point, Ishmael's about 12. Um, Sarah gets really, really embittered towards Hagar and towards Ishmael. And, and the truth is that Sarah had kind of felt this way from the beginning. It says in, in Scripture, as soon as Sarah got pregnant, or as soon as Hagar got pregnant, Sarah started to feel these feelings. We can understand that, but this was her plan. She's the one that, you know, said that this would be what God would want. So 
So after Isaac weans from her, she goes to her husband and says, I'm sick of my maidservant. You need to send her and her son away. And Abraham says, it's your maidservant. You deal with it. But that's not good enough for her. So she decides to continue to kind of press on her husband. So the next morning, Abraham is somewhat distressed about this because it is his son. And he, well, I'm going to actually pick up from there, and I'm going to read the actual passage that, we're gonna, that I'm going to teach from today. So this is chapter Genesis 21. I'm going to start in verse 14. So it says, early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. She set them, he set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off, sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now, I wonder about just Hagar's emotions and thoughts and feelings about this situation. I mean, as we know, she had to have known she lived there. Abraham and Sarah were considered to be the patriarch and matriarch of our faith. They were righteous believers of God. These godly people with faith and love just cut them off and send them out into the wilderness. And it's not even like they're sending them away to something else. Just cut off and sent out. And the reason I bring this up is because I want us to understand most likely the mental state first of Hagar before we understand or read, you know, talk more about the physical state, like the wilderness. Um, she must have been pretty distraught having to shoulder this responsibility all by herself. It's interesting, though, I mean, we're going to now kind of narrow in more on Hagar and Ishmael, the wilderness, and God, less on Sarah and Abraham. But it is interesting, in scriptures, um, in passages before this, Hagar does have an encounter with God. In another situation, an encounter with, um, with Sarah, where Sarah is mean to her, and Basically, after her encounter with God through this, she felt seen. So Hagar was already a woman that felt seen by God. But I think that it's important as we review this scripture and this passage that we not only serve a God who sees us, but we also serve a God who hears us. Now, up until this point, we see Hagar literally shouldering the responsibility and burden of her son's needs as she's cast out. And while in the wilderness, Hagar is facing the most unimaginable crisis that anyone could face, right? Watching her son die. And in spite of these hard times that Hagar and Ishmael were experiencing while wandering in the wilderness, we don't really see either of them call out to God, not until the actual literal threat of death occurs. 
So when they both cry out in their own way, the angel of the Lord does what? He shows up immediately. He reassures and comforts this very scared, this very distressed mother. But then the most fascinating thing happens. Scripture says that God opened her eyes and she saw well. So what does this mean? Because at first glance, I think a lot of us can think it was a miracle. God provided a, a miraculous established well in the middle of the wilderness. But if we look at God's history, that's probably not the case. Because whenever we see God perform a miracle, it's very well known that it was a miracle. And there's purpose in that. Because God wanted people to see not only his glory, but his power. And so in this, it's just that she opened, he opened her eyes. Scripture says that not only did he open her eyes, but she saw this well, so it had to have been not too far away. And the reality is that I think that this well was there the entire time. The entire time that she believes she and her child are facing death. So how can that be? I think Hagar missed the provision of God because she was so focused on her fear, on her pain, and on her circumstance. Being thirsty, our need for water, is a sign for our need that is greater than ourselves. It's beyond ourselves. It's a need we can't meet unless it's provided for us. Her thirst, Ishmael's thirst, and need for something physical actually made them more aware of their need for God. But it did even something that it did something even more important in that moment. Their physical need actually opened them up to the power and the authority of God. You see, when they surrendered their needs and their fears, God answered and showed them something that had actually been there the whole time. Sometimes without the feeling of desperation like we see here with Hagar, sometimes with if, if we don't have the presence of our needs not always getting met and feeling that desperation, we can just continue to wander in our wilderness, whatever that looks like, right? We can continue to wander in our own power, in our own limits, and miss really what God has in store for us. So as I was preparing for this, I wanted to look up in the dictionary the word wilderness and just kind of see, like, what does the dictionary say? Because I, I assumed, and it is, it's, it's mostly all a physical place. But it is interesting that the words used, although describing something very physical, if we look at it through an emotional lens, we can see that it can also be so emotional. Let's look at it. It says a neglected or abandoned area. Neglected or abandoned that's definitely a wilderness, a position of disfavor. So feeling pushed out or set aside or unworthy can definitely feel like a wilderness. An empty or pathless area of region, empty and pathless. Absolutely not walking in the path that God has for us can absolutely be a wilderness. And think about it. Hagar's wilderness started when she was rejected and pushed out by Sarah and Abraham, not when she was wandering. Sometimes I think we often 
fear, like we fear the desperation of our unmet needs. We fear being put in a position that's going to be hard or that's going to be difficult or challenging or that there's uncertainty around. Hagar feared her thirst. She feared the need for water that her and her son both had. And what would happen if this need didn't get met? We can see in this passage that as soon as Hagar ran out of water, she feared death. Fear can be a very, very powerful thing. And it can lead us down rabbit holes that take us outside of God's presence. And I want to be really just frank and honest. Like we, we often view our struggles, right? We, we view our unmet needs, our wilderness, as God's way sometimes of punishment or abandonment. I mean, even Jesus on the cross in his moment of darkness cried out, Jesus, or God, why have you forsaken me? But honestly, it's in this lacking, it's in this adversity that we actually have the courage to die to ourselves and to let God in to call upon God, a God who does hear his children's pleas. Now, as I was thinking about this and a God who hears, I found this amazing promise in Isaiah that God is actually saying to his people, and it's something that I've clung to. I love it because I think it really speaks to what we're talking about. It says, I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. I mean, if this passage doesn't speak directly into Hagar's situation, I don't know what does. So what can we learn from this passage or the story of Hagar, Ishmael, the wilderness, and God? First... We serve a God that goes before us in our struggles and in our pain. He goes before us. He's there waiting. And he's not only waiting, he's smoothing out that rough place. I mean, how many of us have gone through rejection, have been left or abandoned, who feel wounded or abused or pushed out or laughed at? We've all experienced those painful circumstances in one way or another. And I think it's important for us to understand that God has gone before us in smoothing that painful place out. The second thing I think we can learn is that God is a gentleman, right? He's a gentleman. He wants to be invited into our circumstances. I love that scripture that's up there in Revelations 3. Because I think so often when we're struggling, when we're in pain, we automatically think or assume that God should just rush in and do what he needs to do for us. That is not the God we serve. It says he knocks. He knocks at that door of suffering. He knocks at that door of pain. He knocks at the door of our wilderness. But we have, as his children, a responsibility. We have a responsibility to open the door and invite him into it. Ishmael and Hagar both opened the door to God when they called out. 
The third thing I think that we can learn is that, and, and I think this is, it's said over and over, it's over said, but it's important and it's true. So I think it feels like it can be watered down, but God has created us for a specific purpose. Now, Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. I think we, I, I see a lot of people as a counselor, I see a lot of people who they struggle with that idea of purpose. Like I hear it all the time. I don't feel like I know my purpose. I don't understand God's purpose. I feel lost. I think that a big reason for that, obviously it's not in totality, but a big reason is that we often allow our circumstances to define who we are. We allow our circumstances to define what God says about us. And that will always take us off the path that God has. Often we like, we can sing God's praises when things are good and we say, God is good. But then when things are hard or challenging or painful or even that uncertainty that I think most of us are so afraid of, we question what God is doing. We question his authority. We question his goodness. And that's, it's easy to do, but it doesn't mean it's true. You see, Hagar didn't know the end of her story. She didn't know how her story would end. We don't know how our story ends. We don't know how the most challenging circumstances in our lives could actually be what needs to happen for the rest of our story to begin. Let me read kind of the closing scriptures from what I read earlier, what I'm teaching on. It says, And God was with the boy as he grew up in the wilderness. He became a skillful archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran. His mother arranged for him to marry a woman from the land of Egypt, which is where she was from. He found a, he found a livelihood. He found a home. He found a wife in this wilderness that seemed to be the end for Ishmael. All of this started in a near-death experience. The last thing I think we can learn is that God has created us for himself. He truly only wants the very best for his children. I'm reading a book for work right now. It's called Are You Really Okay by Deborah Hurst. And I love this statement. She says, God is more real than your reality. Let me say that again. God is more real than your reality. God was more real than the reality that Hagar believed was true, right, in that moment, in that wilderness. Her and her son dying in the wilderness of thirst, being cast out and pushed out. But it was in that wilderness that God provided the treasures and the hidden wealth that was promised in Isaiah that I read earlier. God wants to bless us with his love, with his kindness, but sometimes this truth doesn't always line up with what we feel or what we're experiencing. Now, I know that even though I'm teaching on a God who hears us, the truth is so often we experience a God who feels very silent, don't we? How does his silence line up with a loving God? I think that there's probably a dozen reasons, and I don't know all of those. 
But I will say what we've learned in just this story is sometimes it's in the silence that we recognize our need for God. And, and God wants that and desires that. He wants us to recognize our need for him. And silence sometimes is the only way that that could happen. But I think also sometimes God's silence is because we've already been prepared by God for the very moment we are in. How many of you here are teachers? <clears throat> so let's think about a teacher for a minute. A teacher preparing their students for this giant exam, this life-changing exam, okay? So during the preparation of the exam, the teacher is there and present, answering questions and guiding and leading and correcting, nurturing, doing all of those things. But the day of the exam, the teacher's in the room, but they're silent. And there's reason for that. There's purpose in that silence. It allows the student to know what they know. It allows them to be able to practice and accomplish what they've been prepared for. There is purpose in God's silence. Church, we serve a God who hears us. The day, in, that day in my dad's hospital room, I, um, as I said, I was, I was pretty broken up. I was lamenting pretty loudly. I called my mom, and I just kept saying the things that you've heard today over and over. Of, I missed it. What, it, what it. How am I going to live the rest of my life not knowing um, and just thinking about my dad's salvation and eternity. And, you know, Jeff um, was pretty abrupt as I'm on the phone crying and, and all broken down. And he says very sternly, get off the phone. And I, re I do remember to this day thinking, like, are you kidding me? Like, do you not see what I'm going through? And I, I kind of just kept crying, and I was on the phone with my mom, and he said again very sternly, get off the phone. I, I told my mom I had to go. I hung up the phone, and um, he, he said, I want you to watch this. And he had the whole time, I didn't even really notice, but the whole time he had been sitting on my dad's bedside next to him, and he had my dad's hands in his hands. And he said, Jerry, if you can hear me, squeeze my hand. And so clearly, my dad squeezed his hand. And he said, Jerry, if you can hear me, nod your head. And my dad nodded. And Jeff said, get up here and you talk to your dad. And I did. I shared the love of Christ, the power of God with my dad. He talked about eternity and heaven. And I asked my dad if... He wanted to ask Jesus into his heart, and my dad nodded very clearly. So we, we prayed, and afterwards I had to check in and clarify, and I said, Dad, did you, did you pray? Did you accept Jesus? He nodded his head. I asked him if he was afraid, and he nodded his head. 
And I, I reassured him as best I could that there was now nothing, nothing to be afraid of. And then he, Jeff had taken a few steps away to give us some time and space. And um, you could tell he was, he couldn't, we couldn't understand him, but he was making noises and moving his head. And so Jeff kind of assumed he was trying to talk to him, and he was. And so Jeff got into his line of sight, and just my dad just kept saying something over and over and over. And finally, Jeff said, I'll, I'll take care of your daughter. And my dad was gone. And he wasn't dead, but he was right back into that state where he just was no longer there. His eyes were open, but he was no longer there. And he passed the next day. Like Hagar, I almost completely missed what God was trying to do or was going to do in that moment. But also like Hagar, God heard my cries. I want to close with this quote that I, I, I'm reading this other book, Encountering the, the God of Love. Um, and I think it's just so powerful, but I also think that it's so meaningful to what I've talked about today. Um, it's by Stephanie Matthews. She says, sometimes God intervenes with miraculous power. Other times God simply comes alongside, sees, and hears. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and um, we want to thank you, not only for your presence here, but for your goodness, Lord, for your word that at times when you feel distant or silent, we can cling to the promises that you've given to us, that you've provided to us for some of these reasons. We're thankful for the power that you have in our life, that there is nothing, nothing that can box you in, God. We're grateful that knowing you and, and loving you and believing in you always and also empowers us as, as your children. And so I just pray over this talk. I pray that it would, um, it would be what it needs to be for those that are listening. And, um, we pray, God, your power and your healing over painful circumstances. We love you. We praise you. And we give you these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you are dismissed. Thank you.